0: Take your Bible and turn with me this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Second Samuel chapter 6, are looking at the Bible, you ought to find it on page 329. I want you to imagine with me for a moment. We're gathered together. On a Sunday morning, and uh, right now in this moment, when we've just finished singing and praying, God Himself manifested His presence among us. I'm talking, we saw His glory and we heard His voice. He spoke directly to us. How would we respond to that? What would we do? I want you to just think think about that for a second. Do you think that might change your attitude? Do you think that whatever that thing in the back of your mind right now that's nagging you that you have to do later today that you're worried about or you're trying not to forget, do you think you might forget about that for a little bit? Do you think you would be as easily distracted? Do you think you would be bored? Do you think you would... Try to minimize your sin or compare it to others? No. Now here's the thing. That does happen every Sunday. It does not happen as obviously as we see it happen on occasion in the Bible. And it does not happen as obviously as it will on the last day when we stand before the Lord um, without a glass between, as the old hymn says. But when the visible church gathers together to sing the praise of God and to hear the Word of God, the Lord Himself is present. Right before I came up here, I was looking in 1 Peter 4, something that I, a verse I try to remind myself of on occasion, 1 Peter 4, 11, where it says uh, uh, that that the one who speaks should speak as one who has oracles of God. Meaning the person who has the responsibility of standing in the church and opening the Bible. Obviously, the words that come out of my mouth are not necessarily uh, God's words, except the ones that I'm going to read here in a moment. But I I stand as one who, holding this book, God breathed, inspired by Him. We're holding the very oracles of God. We're We're holding the words of God. We're hearing the words of God when we read this book. And we need to be reminded of that today, that when the church gathers to sing the Lord's praise and to hear His word, the Lord is present. And uh, as we're going to see in our text today, that should be a sobering thing for us, to know that the Lord is present among us. It's not something to be taken lightly. It ought to make us have a sense of reverent awe right now in this moment, but also a sense of joy. And so let's read together Second Samuel chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark." And David, all the, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez-Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings... He blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that um, God that you would help us first of all to understand what this story has to do with us today, and God that once that truth settles on us that we would be deeply sobered by it, but God also that our hearts would bubble up with joy that you, the very God of the universe, the one who made all things including us, that you would condescend to make yourself present among your people so that we might know you, and so that you might be reconciled to us and that you might reveal yourself to us. So God, help us in this moment to have a a spirit of reverent joy, God, that we would leave today both with awe and, uh, and delight in you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, I want to just begin this morning by trying to summarize the big idea of this passage and then we'll jump in and try to show you where I see this. The big idea of 2 Samuel 6 is that the presence of God among His people ought to make us reverent and joyful. The presence of God among His people ought to make us reverent and joyful. Now everything that happens in this chapter relates in some way or another to This box called the Ark of God. I want you to notice at the end of verse 2, we're given the full title for what this thing is called. We sometimes refer to it as the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, or something like that. But at the end of verse 2, the author of 2 Samuel calls this, the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. That's the title for it. The Ark of God who is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. The ark was a God-given physical representation of the Lord's presence among His people. Now, the word God-given, the phrase God-given is important there. It's a God-given physical representation of the Lord's presence. It would be idolatrous if Moses had, on his own prerogative, come up with this idea that we're going to we're going to build a box. We're going to make it real nice. We're going to put some gold on it, put some kind of angelic creatures on top, We'll stick the Ten Commandments inside it. And um, we're going to, this is going to be the physical representation for the Lord's presence for us. We're going to bow down to it and we'll, you know, we'll build a tent for it and we'll carry it out when we go to battle and those kind of things. That would be idolatrous if Moses had come up with this idea. But Moses did not come up with this idea nor did any other Israelite or any other human, God did. God's the one who said, here's what you're going to build, here are the specific dimensions for it, Um, and here's what you are to do with it, here's how you are to treat it, and oh, by the way, this box that I'm telling you to build, I am going to reveal my presence above this box. So God is the one who came up with this idea, which is why it's not idolatrous. That's what distinguishes the Ark from, for example, the golden calf or any other human creation. The Ark was also importantly a it was a God-given physical representation of the Lord's presence, which means that the it's not, it does not contain the Lord's presence, but it represents the Lord's presence. Um, just because God made His presence visible here does not mean that He ceased to be present everywhere else. And it also means that the ark was not, and I say this you know, with great fear and trembling, the ark was not important on its own. It, it was significant because it was where the Lord was pleased to dwell. In fact, back in 1 Samuel, the Israelites learned that lesson the hard way because they thought, well, we're going out to battle against the Philistines, so we just need to take the ark out there, right? And and we'll win. And they were treating the, the ark like this magical box. It's like this charm. As long as we have the ark, we're safe and we'll win all our victories. But they they didn't actually pause to seek the will of the one who was revealing His presence above that box. And so what what's... What we're going to find today and be reminded of today is that the Lord no longer resides with His people in precisely this same way. So there's a reason why we didn't come in this morning and there's a, a golden box in here. There's a reason why you never hear of Christians taking a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to go and bow before some golden box. Well, first of all, we don't know where it is. We'll get back to that later. But second of all, who cares where it is? Because we don't need it. We have something better than that today. And so the Lord does not reside with His people in this same way, but he, he does still reside in His presence among His people, and His presence ought to make us both reverent and joyful. Now before we get too far into the story here, it might help us just to have a general idea in our mind about what this ark looked like. There's In in, in particular one physical detail about the ark that's really relevant for this particular story. I was thinking this week about how can I communicate to you kind of what the ark looked like and I thought well I could tell you that it was so many feet long by so many feet high by so many feet deep but that's at least for me I have a hard time sort of visualizing that so I thought what if I took the physical dimensions of the Ark and I tried to find something that you are pretty familiar with and say, okay, it's about that size. So I want you to think about um, just kind of a standard refrigerator, not, not one of the ones side by side or not the one like we have in there that's kind of big, but just the standard fridge on bottom, freezer on top. Most of those uh, fridge-freezer combos, I looked on the Lowe's website this week, about 18 to 22 cubic feet. That's roughly the size of the ark. Okay, It was about 19 cubic feet, give or take. So imagine if you took one of those refrigerators, laid it over on its back. That would be that rectangular box. That would be about the size of the ark. Now, of course, it didn't look anything like that. It was made with wood overlaid with gold. One of the most relevant details about the ark for us today as we're reading this story is that God specifically instructed Moses to put a ring on each corner, all four corners of the ark. And then he told him how to make these special poles. The poles were to be slid through the rings so that the ark could be carried by specific people. And the idea was, by putting the poles to the rings and carrying it, no one was supposed to touch the ark. All of this was meant to impress on the people the holiness of God. So, if you know that... Once you know that detail, as soon as you read chapter 6, verse 3, there's a big warning sign flashing here. Verse 3 says, And they carried the ark of God on a new cart. Hmm, that's not what they were supposed to do. Um, This is the way the Philistines transported the ark back uh, in 1 Samuel. It may seem perfectly acceptable to us. That sounds good, right? I mean it sounds like they made a, a, a totally new cart. This is not a cart that had carried um, um, uh, olives or grapes or, or or manure or anything like that. This was a special specially made brand new cart we 're trying to show respect for the the art, but the problem is. It's not what God commanded them to do. And so they were essentially taking a pagan practice and doing that instead of doing what the Lord had commanded them to do. And I was thinking about that this week and I thought, you know, unfortunately, first of all, thats it's not the only time we see the Lord's people do that in Scripture it's something that we even still do today, unfortunately, where we, we act on the basis of worldly wisdom rather than on the basis of what God has revealed in His Word. Sometimes we know what God has said in His Word, but we just choose to ignore it because it's, it's inconvenient or, or we don't want to or whatever. Other times we don't know what God has said about a particular thing. Ignorance is no excuse for sin. In fact, sometimes the reason we don't know what God has said is because we haven't been all that careful to listen to what He said or to, to, to ask, what does God say about this? I, I don't know which of these was true of David. I suspect that either he knew beforehand and, and didn't obey the command or after this event happened, he went and studied up it's possible that David knew about God's instructions to Moses but ignored them. It's also possible that um, he thought it, doesn't, it didn't, doesn't matter that much. At the end of the day, the important thing is we get the ark to where it needs to go. It's also possible that he was totally ignorant about what God had told Moses or how they were supposed to carry the ark. Either way, what David does here is sin. And this sin results in the death of this man Uzzah. When the oxen are walking, one of them stumbles and the cart lurches and Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady the ark. And look at what happens in verse 7. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down there because of his error and he died there beside the ark of God. Now, I don't know how... What your initial impression is of verse seven? My initial impression, if I'm just being entirely honest with you, is that seems like an overreaction. You know, I mean, this guy was doing the best he could. Um, doesn't it seems like he was trying to act in what would be honorable, respectful for the ark? Was, was His action here really so bad that it deserved for Him to be struck dead on the spot? That's, those are the questions I ask when I read verse 7. The problem is, that's the point. That we cannot operate by what seems wise in our eyes. We have to be careful to always ask at all times, what has God said in His Word? And beyond that, we do not have the prerogative to tell God Which sin is worthy of death and which one is not? The wages of sin is death. No exceptions to that. What happened to Uzzah here in 2 Samuel 6 is a foretaste of what is going to happen on the last day to every sinner except the ones who have called upon the name of the Lord in faith. This picture of, of, of judgment, of death being dealt to one who has sinned, this is a foretaste. It's a picture of what's going to happen to every sinner. What happened to us it will happen to everyone who does not heed the word of the Lord and call upon his name in faith. And so this is a sobering picture because our natural inclination is to say, Is that sin really all that bad? Our our, our natural inclination is to downplay it. And this is a very clear example of the wages of sin is death. And this event certainly seems to have impressed on David the holiness of God and the necessity of careful obedience because David, Uzzah, is not the only one responsible here. David is the one, he's the one who is the king. And Deuteronomy 17 said of kings that they should have the word of the Lord near them. So David should have led these people in a more righteous, obedient way than he has. And so he's reminded of this and we see him here temporarily. He houses the ark in the house of a man named Obed-Edom. And then when they finally bring the ark out of the house of Obed-Edom and transport it into Jerusalem. The text does not explicitly say that they carried the ark properly the second time, but I want you to notice verse 13. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, He sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. It doesn't say the oxen, when the oxen had gone six steps. It said when those, it seems to imply people, so the, the implication to me seems that either David knew beforehand and now he's obeying or after this event happened with us, he went back and said, okay, what in the world has happened? Somebody tell me what the law says. And they told him, well, David, the, the ark is supposed to be carried by these, on these poles and it's not just anyone, it's supposed to be Levites who carry it. And so he's been reminded here of the, the necessity of obedience. But his reverence is also matched by joy. The author repeatedly references this. Verse 12 says, So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Verse 14, And David danced before the Lord with all his might. Verse 15, So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Verse 16 mentions King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And after offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blesses the people and distributes this Celebratory portion of food. The author even draws attention to David's joy by contrasting it with his wife Michael's anger. When he gets home that evening, she scolds him sarcastically. This is in the middle of verse 20, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Now, couple things that that could mean she could mean that in in David's uh, excitement and his dancing you know men wore robes and so maybe his robe sort of you know got thrown up in the air and he uncovered himself It's also equally likely that she does not mean that he literally exposed himself to anyone but simply that he was out among the people in public without his royal clothing. And the reason I raise that possibility is because verse 14, the author specifically mentions what he was wearing. In verse 14 it says, And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. This, In other words, he was not wearing what you would expect a king to wear. This is kind of everyday common clothing that, that a, a priest might wear or that any sort of run-of-the-mill man might wear. And so Michael finds it galling, as it were, that the king should dishonor himself by wearing something less than a king's robe. David's response to her is striking, verse 21. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father. Remember, she's the, the daughter of Saul. It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. Now, I want us to take a step back. We could dive into... uh, How wise or unwise that would be for a husband to say to his wife, but that's not the point of this text. I want us to take a step back and and ask big picture, what is it about this ark that it evokes such strong responses from everyone in this chapter? Think about the responses that this box evokes from people in this chapter. Because Uzzah stretches out his hand and touches it, God strikes him dead on the spot. David, we see him perhaps more than we see him anywhere else in any other story. Joyful, dancing with all his might, singing, telling everybody to bring their instruments and let's all have a party. And Michael, we see her responding in in anger. What is it that causes such a strong response from everyone. I said earlier that the Ark was a God-ordained physical representation of the Lord's presence. I want to point us to three truths about God's presence that the Ark represented, and I think this is going to help us understand why it evokes such strong responses. So three truths about God, uh, about His presence that the Ark represented. First... Represented that God rules over his people. God rules over his people. The, the ark is essentially his throne or the footstool of his throne. Way back in verse 2, we pointed out that the title of it is The Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of Hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. The, on top of the ark, there were these two angelic creatures called cherubim. They were facing each other. And it says that the the Lord sits enthroned on them. So the ark is literally like this embodiment of, of God's throne. It's a, a moving throne. Wherever the, the throne goes, the king goes. Everything about the ark, both the physical description of it, the care with which it was to be handled, everything was meant to strike awe and reverence in the people of Israel. But contrary to what... You know, Raiders of the Lost Ark would have you believe there was nothing magical about the box. What, what made it significant was the one who sat enthroned on it. The Ark was the place where the king made his presence visible. There's nowhere you can go where God is not, but he chose to reveal his ruling presence here above this box. Next, the ark represented that God reveals Himself to His people. It represented that God reveals Himself to His people. There were several things housed inside the ark. But from the very beginning, God told Moses that the ark was meant to carry the tablets of the Ten Commandments that God was going to give him. In fact, God called it the Ark of the Testimony, which is where we get the word, the phrase Ark of the Covenant, specifically meant that it was the Ark that contained the law, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments represented God's revealing of His will. So everywhere the Ark went, it was a physical reminder that God had spoken to His people, that He had revealed His character and His power and His will to them. And third... The Ark represented that God reconciles Himself to His people. The Ark represented that God reconciles Himself to His people. So housed inside the Ark is the Ten Commandments. This is how we know what sin is, because God has told us. The Ten Commandments condemn us. There's no one who can read that document and and say, Yeah, I'm, I'm good. Scot free never, never broken any one of those. So the Ten Commandments reveals our sin. One of the Reformers talked about the significance about how this, the Ten Commandments were covered over with what is often called the mercy seat. This, this lid on top sometimes called the mercy seat. The word that's used to describe it in Hebrew is kaporet, which is similar to the word kapur, atonement, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The the mercy seat, the, the, the significance of it was this was the place where one, one day a year the, the high priest was to go into the Holy of Holies and he was to take blood of certain animals and he was to sprinkle the blood on that atonement cover or that mercy seat. So the ark represented God's holiness. It represented the fact that He had revealed to us what His holiness is and what our sin is, but it also reminded God's people of what He had done to reconcile Himself to them through the shedding of blood. The ark was the physical place where sin was atoned for. It was the place where God was reconciled to His sinful people. I kind of mentioned passing. We don't know where the ark is today. Sometimes Christians wonder about that. Most people think it was destroyed when the Babylonians ransacked Jerusalem in the 580s B.C., if not before then, it's striking that once the Ark is moved to Jerusalem, once it's moved into the temple in First Kings 8, you hear almost nothing about it after that. Um, it's not surprising people would wonder about where it is. Um, as important as the Ark was back then, however, we don't need it anymore. Because we have something infinitely better. And when I say that we don't need the ark, I don't mean to say we don't need the Lord's presence. I'm simply saying that the Lord has revealed His presence to us in a different way. We have something better. We have Jesus. So think about these three things that the ark represented. It represented God's rule and His revealing of His will and His reconciling Himself. That is what we have in Christ. The ark was the throne where the king sat. And Jesus is our king who rules for our good. The ark was the container of God's revelation. It was the place where the prophets would often point back to the law. Jesus is our prophet who did not only reveal God's word like the law and prophets did, but he embodied God's word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have beheld his glory full of grace and truth. And the ark was the place where the high priest would go one day a year and would sprinkle the blood of bulls and goats. We have something infinitely better than that. We have a great high priest who has not sprinkled the blood of bulls and goats on a perishable box that can be taken and destroyed. But we have a great high priest who has poured out his own blood in our place. And he doesn't do it one day a year He doesn't do it every day as the writer of Hebrews says. He did it once for all time. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But Christ, when He offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, has sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. So the ark was this thing that represented this constant activity of these priests. Every day they would have to go to the altar outside, and then one day a year the high priest would go in and offer sacrifice. And the writer of Hebrews says, we don't need the ark, we don't need that uh, altar, we don't need the bronze basin, we don't need the temple or the tabernacle, because we have something better. We have a great high priest who has entered into the heavenly temple, and he has shed not the blood of bulls and goats, but he shed his own blood. And so the ark was at one time the meeting place between God and His people. But now God meets with His people, not in a place, but in a person, namely Jesus. What's more, if you are united to Jesus by faith, you have the Spirit of God dwelling within you. God Himself is present with you by His Spirit. So there's a sense in which, if you are united to Christ by faith, God Himself has taken up residence within you. You have been justified in His sight and you are being sanctified. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says, He sanctified for all time those who are being perfected by faith. What that means is, if you're a follower of Christ, you are a walking around version of the ark. You are this holy vessel in which god has revealed his presence sanctified by the blood of the lamb being kept imperishable i hope that evokes in you a sense of awe and reverence and a sense of joy because as as paul would say our bodies are a temple of the holy spirit so we should treat them with reverence The same reverence that these people treated the ark. The importance of the ark was never about the physical object. It's the fact that this is where the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the God of all the universe, this is where He condescended to make His presence known. And the same is true today in the church. The importance of the church is not in the building or the physical space, but it is in the gathering, the assembling of the Lord's people. This is where He is pleased to make His presence known in the praise of His people, in the preaching of His Word, in the observance of His ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's through the Word of God that the Lord reveals Himself and rules over His people today, and shows us the way that we are reconciled with God. And that presence of God among His people through His Word ought to make us reverent and joyful. And so it's sobering when you think about the consequences of what happened here in Second Samuel, because it would be easy for us to say, Wow! That was a long time ago, and I'm sure glad that God doesn't relate to us that way anymore, but He does. He's still the same God. The only difference is, because of the the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, God is being patient, and He is delaying judgment until the day when He has fixed. So it's not that well God has done away with this kind of judgment, it's that He has delayed it and either you trust in Christ and the judgment is dealt to Him or the judgment still awaits you on the last day. And so this is sobering for us. Sobering to think about what happens to those who do not take heed of God's Word. There's soberness for me Because I'm not a king, I'm not David, but I am God's representative who bears the responsibility of making sure that you know God's Word. David should have said, no, 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 guys, I know that it seems like this cart's a really good idea, but that's not what God has said in His Word. So David bore that responsibility. I'm not David, but I have that same responsibility to you today to say, thus says the Lord... But I'm not the only one. You also bear a responsibility as those who are hearing God's Word to take heed to it, to listen to it, to trust it, and obey it. What happened to us will happen on the last day to everyone who refuses to listen to what God has said and trust in Him. And so our gathering is a balance of reverence and joy. We should have reverence and awe before the Lord as, as the one who rules over His people and has revealed Himself as perfectly holy and yet we also have joy that he has revealed the way for us to be reconciled to him by faith in his son Jesus we're going to sing a hymn of invitation in just a moment this is our opportunity to respond to the word of God and um, make no mistake we don't choose between responding or not responding we choose between responding in faith or in hardness of heart And so I'm going to be standing at the head of this aisle. I'd love to speak with you this morning or pray with you. The altar's open if you'd like to come and pray. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us um, like blind people groping around trying to find you, but that you came to us, that you revealed yourself to us, that you stooped down first uh, in something as simple as uh, a box, but later that you... Stooped down and condescended to, to reveal your glory even in a, a baby born in Bethlehem, in a, a, a carpenter from a no name place called Nazareth, and in a man who was crucified like a, a, a common criminal. Lord, we're thankful that you have uh, been pleased to reveal your glory in such ordinary looking things, and that even today you. You show your presence and you are present among your people in such an ordinary place among such ordinary people as us. God, I pray that we would delight in that, as Paul said, that you have made the the treasure of the gospel to be hidden in jars of clay so that it may be evident that the power is not with us but with you. God, I, I pray that we would be sober today and And full of all, uh, you, the one who speaks, the one who reveals his will perfectly. And God, that we would be joyful that you have made a way for us to be reconciled to you. God, help us not to leave today with any other response but that. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.